morning. It's good to be with you again, to share God's Word with you. So, I've given a couple of sermons now that are based in the Gospel of John, and if you remember those sermons, you probably heard me mention about one of the key interpretive elements in that gospel is John's prologue, because it gives a number of themes that appear much later throughout the gospel. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 17 today, but before we get there, I want us to turn once again to John's prologue in John chapter 1. And the whole prologue is found in verses 1 through 18, but we're going to be looking specifically at verses 14 through 18. And these verses, again, introduce to us a theme that will be found throughout the rest of John's gospel. In verses 14 through 18, John chapter 1, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Some other translations may say grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So in these verses... John introduces to us the theme of glory. And we've all heard that word before. Sometimes we think of glory as our favorite sports teams winning the World Series, just like the Atlanta Braves won in 2021. Probably going to do again this year. Just woo! And we've all heard it in relation to God's glory and our need to glorify God. But what does that word glory really mean in John's gospel? And why is it important to understand what it means and what it doesn't mean? And as we get ready to turn to John chapter 17 now, we're going to look at glory and what it has to do with unity. We're going to ask questions about what does the glory, how do glory and unity go together? And what is this unity that Jesus prayed for? And then how should we live in light of it? So let's turn now to John 17. And we're going to be continuing in Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I'm going to read from verses 20 through 23. So Jesus is praying for his disciples, and now he begins to pray for his future disciples that will believe through the message of the apostles. And he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. So Jesus is praying for future disciples, people who will come to believe as the apostles go out and continue the Father's will. And he prays that they would be unified and become one, just as the Father and Son are one. And then in verse 22, we find that word glory again. And Jesus says that he has given his disciples the same glory that the Father has given him. And that he gave this 
glory to them so that it would be brought together in complete unity. So what, what is this glory that Jesus has given to his disciples? How does it relate to their unity with one another? So the first thing we need to understand about Jesus' glory is that it refers to him being the full, perfect revelation of God. If we go back to John 1.14, John wrote that he and his disciples have seen his glory. And then down in verse 18, he wrote that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has revealed God. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So when we talk about Jesus' glory, one of the first and most important aspects to understand about that is that Jesus reveals the Father. In the same way that light radiates from the sun, Jesus is the one that radiates the Father's glory. And God has revealed himself in the past in various ways, like when God's glory passed by Moses in Exodus 33, but now he has been fully revealed in the person of Jesus. The depths of his grace, the riches of his love, the freeing power of his mercy and forgiveness, all of God's goodness, all of God's greatness, all of it has been indwelt and manifested through the person of Jesus. So Jesus is the glory of God, and if we look at him, we will see what God is like. The second thing we need to understand about Jesus' glory is that it refers to his death, resurrection, and ascension. And we know this because several times throughout John's letter, Jesus refers to his impending suffering, his impending death, as his glory. Jesus predicts his death in John chapter 12 when he tells his disciples that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in the upper room discourse, right after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and right after Judas goes out to betray him, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And then again in John chapter 7, John writes about Jesus talking to his followers about the Holy Spirit, and he says, up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So that refers to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And Jesus is glorified in these things because through his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has defeated the power of sin and death. He has conquered all of his enemies, and he has risen and is seated at the right hand of the Father as King and Lord over all. And then the third thing we need to know about Jesus' glory is that it refers to his miracles and acts that point people towards the Father and the reality of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. One of the most well-known miracles in John's gospel is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And when Jesus hears about Lazarus' death, he says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So that miracle, along with all the others, they act as signposts that point people to the Father. It was meant to show and prove to people that Jesus has, in fact, been sent into the world from the Father to complete and continue his saving work. So in the same way that signs help point us in the right direction and tell us which way to go, Jesus' acts and his miracles point people to the reality of who he is and to the Father. So Jesus' glory refers to his revelation of God, 
his saving work and ascension as king over all, his life and acts which point people towards God and prove that he has been sent into the world from the Father so that people might believe. Now this is important to understand because we go back to John 17, verse 22, as we saw, Jesus says that he has given his glory to his disciples. So all the things that encompass Jesus' glory, he has now shared with his disciples. So what does, what does that mean exactly? In a nutshell, it means that through Jesus' saving work, we benefit by becoming one with him, by him being in us. It means that we are called to embody the glory that Jesus received from the Father. Through Jesus' saving work, we are united together with him, and he has gifted us with his glory so that we can now live a life that looks like his. By being partakers in Jesus' glory, we are called to embody his death by dying to our sin and living a life of sacrificial love towards one another. We are called to live out the new life we have through his resurrection, a life that is dead to sin but alive to God in Christ, a life that points people to God through our collective witness together. And then Jesus says the purpose of him sharing this glory with us is unity that Jesus' disciples would be one as he and the Father are one. So let's talk more about unity, what it is, what it looks like, and the purpose of it. The Greek word used when Jesus prays that his disciples and future disciples would be one as he and the Father are one is, is the Greek word hen, and the literal definition of it is the numeral one. So it refers to a single of something. Like if you go to Wendy's, you get a single instead of a double, triple, quadruple, or whatever they, they have now. It refers to something that stands alone, like saying, I have one penny, or I have one item of this or that. Now, does that mean that Jesus wants all of his disciples to one day become enmeshed into one giant super disciple? No. We all know that that's not what Jesus is talking about. But when Jesus prays that his followers will be one, just as he and the Father are one, he is praying for a single-mindedness, a single devotion, a single allegiance for his followers. Sometimes when we hear the word unity, we think that what that looks like for us is that we can't think anything differently than anyone else, or that everyone needs to think the same as we do. And we can believe that in order to be unified with others, there can be no room for any disagreement, any conflict, or any different way of looking at something. And the minute some form of disagreement pops up, we can think, oh no, I'm not unified with this person or with these people anymore. And we can often pray for unity. Sometimes what we really end up wanting is just for all the disagreements and conflicts to go away and for everybody to think the same. And yes, it's wonderful when we're all on the same page with everyone around us, especially with our spouses and our families, and there's nothing wrong with that. And hopefully we experience more times like that than not, especially with our spouses and families. But being unified does not mean that people must agree on exactly everything and believe exactly everything the same together. When Jesus prays for unity here, he is praying that regardless 
of what things his disciples might think differently on. And no matter their background or ethnicity or where they come from, that they would be united together under the same conviction that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their King. He is praying that their allegiance would be to him alone. And yes, there are things that we need to believe the same in order to be unified as believers. For example, like the doctrines that are laid out in the Apostles' Creed. But there are many things that true, devoted disciples of Jesus may still disagree on. Sometimes those disagreements might seem big and then other times not so much. But the unity and oneness that Jesus is talking about here is not a unity and oneness that requires us to think exactly the same as everybody else all the time. But a unity and oneness of single-minded allegiance to Jesus Christ as our Savior, King, and Lord. And that unity manifests itself in sacrificial love for one another. This kind of unity is a unity that brings together people from every nation, every tongue, and is a kind of unity that no matter our skin color, background, nationality, believers become one family with each other. It is a type of unity that gives life to Paul's statement in Galatians that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the example that Jesus gives us for this kind of unity he is praying for is of the Father and of the Son. He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what does it mean that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and the Son is in us? This is what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 19. He said, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So the Father and the Son are so complete in their love, in their union with each other, that they cannot and will not do anything that opposes one another. Jesus cannot and will not do anything that goes against the will of the Father, and the Father will not and cannot do anything that opposes his Son because of the union and love that they have for one another. And what is it that motivates this kind of oneness? It is love. It is love for the Father that is the basis of the Son's submission and devotion to the Father, and it is love that is the basis for the Father's devotion to the Son. And love should also be the basis for the unity of all believers. It is possible to be unified without love, but that will always go wrong. And the Tower of the Babel is the best example of that. Everyone was unified. They wanted to make a name for themselves, to build a tower that stretched up to heaven. But the thing that was absent was love for God and love for one another. And unity without love leads towards chaos, confusion, and destruction. When believers are united together, it should manifest itself in that same love that motivated the Father and the Son. In John 13, 34-35, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It is by love 
that the world will know that believers are disciples of Jesus. It is love that is the motivation for the unity of all believers. When disciples are one, just as the Father and Son are one, the world will know that Jesus is true and has been sent into the world from the Father. And the goal of this unity that Jesus is praying for is that the unity of believers will be a manifestation of God to the world. In the same way that Jesus came and revealed a greater picture of God, so the witness and unity of his disciples is meant to carry on that work. It's meant to carry on as an act of revelation witness to the saving work of God in the world. The Holy Spirit has not come yet when Jesus is praying this prayer, but this is only possible by the Spirit working through us as we seek this kind of unity motivated by love. If you've ever read the novel The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, there's a scene when one of the characters named Father Zosima, he's an elderly pious monk, and he's conversing with a landowner. And the landowner is struggling in her faith. She has many doubts. She has many questions. And she's asking Father Zosima, like, how can I know that this is true? How can I know that this is real? She says, how can it be proven? How can one be convinced it is true? And she's talking about her faith in God, the afterlife, everything that she's been taught about God. And then Father Zosima replies, by the experience of active love. And in the same way, it is the active love and unity of believers, the Spirit working through us, that convinces the world that Jesus is true and has been sent from the Father. So what are some examples in Scripture of what this unity might look like? One example is the story of Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was a Roman centurion and a Gentile. In Acts 10, it says that he was also a God-fearing man and that many Jews respected him and loved him because of the kindness and love that he has shown to them. One afternoon, Cornelius had a vision where God told him to send some men to Joppa to find a man named Peter and to bring Peter back. Cornelius obeyed. The next day in Joppa, Peter went up on a rooftop to pray. And while there, he fell into a trance and he had a vision. And Peter's vision was of animals that were considered unclean. And a voice was telling him to get up, kill, and eat. Kind of like some of you might experience the closer we get to the lunch hour. But Peter responded at first by refusing. But then the voice told Peter not to call anything God has made unclean. And this happened three times. Peter was wondering what this vision meant when the men that Cornelius sent had come to find him. And so the very next day, Peter went with the men back to Cornelius. And when Cornelius and Peter met each other, Peter said to him, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And then he went on to say, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So through Jesus... God has brought down the dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. Through his vision, Peter came to realize that God's salvation was not just for Jews alone, but that God also wanted Gentiles to be a part of his family. 
This example of Peter and Cornelius provides us with a great starting point for what it looks like for us today to practice unity in our time. The basis that allowed Peter and Cornelius to be brought together as brothers was the redemptive work of God through Jesus. And that same work is the basis for the unity of all disciples. No matter where we are from, no matter what our background is like, no matter what language we speak, no matter how different we may seem from one another, Jesus' death and resurrection is the only thing that makes it possible for believers of all shapes and sizes to be brought together as one family. And the purpose of this bringing together of all believers in Christ is to create one new humanity under Christ. And this is what it says in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Paul writes, For he himself is our peace, referring to Jesus, who has made the two groups one, referring to Jews and Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So Jesus has reconciled Jew and Gentile together through the work on the cross for the purpose of creating one new humanity out of the two groups. And this new humanity is what Jesus calls us to live in. This new humanity is what we are called to walk in and to manifest itself in mutual sacrificial love for one another. There was real hatred and animosity between Jews and Gentiles and even among different sects of Jews, like the Samaritans. But Jesus, through all his glory, the revelation of the Father, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, has demolished every kind of dividing wall that can come between Jew and Gentile. Jesus' redemptive work has erased every basis for hatred and has given the only basis for unifying love. It is this glory that Jesus has shared with us and that we are called to stand in. It is in this basis alone that we already have a unity with believers in Jesus from around the world. But even though we have it, it still must be protected and it still has to be cultivated. And sadly, throughout church history, there have been many things that have threatened the unity of the church. And today it's no different. It is necessary and good for us from time to time to think about the things that might actually threaten our unity as the body of Christ. So the first thing that I'd like to talk about that threatens our unity today in the church is politics. It is good that we have a voice and can vote our conscience in elections, and it is good that we are able to have a say in the direction that we feel is best for our country. Many people in other countries don't have that. Many people in other countries don't have the rights that we have. And we should not take those things for granted. We should be the best stewards of them that we can. But sometimes, our political allegiance can overtake and undermine our allegiance to Jesus. As Christians in America, this is something that we should always be watching out for. We are naturally going to gravitate towards affiliations that align most with our values and the things that we believe. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. But it becomes a problem when we rely too much on one political party or one political leader to make everything right. It becomes a problem when we think Jesus, if he were here today, would belong to my political party. When we think this way, we are divided. When we think this way, our political party becomes our master instead of Jesus. If Jesus were here today, he would be Jesus, King, Savior, Lord over everything. And that is where our allegiance should lie as believers. When we rest our hope too much in politics, we end up biting and devouring one another. And we end up repaying evil with more evil. When our devotion is primary to politics or just one political leader, we are going to take on the character of those things. And only when believers are united in Christ can they take on the character of Christ. And only when, only then will there be the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for. When Jesus called his first disciples, he gathered people from various factions. He brought together humble fishermen, violent zealots, and traitorous tax collectors. Without Jesus, those people would have hated and devoured each other. But through Jesus, they were able to be united with one another and love one another as they sought first the kingdom of God over anything else. And it should be the same with us. Jesus' lordship over us should transcend our political affiliation so much that no matter what happens in this world, we are united together in the pursuit of the kingdom of God, first and foremost. And we should be united together in that pursuit until the day when God's glory covers the earth just like the waters cover the seas. And then the second thing that I'd like to talk about that I think can really threaten our unity is, is just the narcissistic culture that we live in. And what do I mean by that? While it's good to recognize when we need rest or when we might need a little me time, it's good to have things in our lives that bring us joy, that bring us pleasure, but those things can be taken too far. And those things can be taken to a point where they become selfish and hurtful. Our narcissistic culture promotes what I need over and above what anyone else needs. When something is no longer useful to us, we throw it out and we just look for something else that is going to bring us what we want. And it's not just with things, but it's also with people. And yes, sometimes, if we're not careful, this attitude can creep into the church as well. Friendship in our time is very fragile. Friends, like things, when they are no longer useful, can become dispensable. When friends hurt us, it can sometimes be easier just to let the friendship go than to try to work through something. And this comes from the narcissistic mindset of, if someone or something does not bring me joy and peace, I need to get rid of it out of my life. I need to only bring things into my life that bring me joy, that bring me peace, that bring me contentment. No problems whatsoever. And the problem with that is that Jesus pursued us until the point of death. 
And if we only pursue things that bring us joy and peace in our lives, including people and friendships, and if we would rather end a friendship when we've been let down or hurt instead of trying to reconcile to work through things, we have forsaken the example and love of our Savior who pursued us to the point of death. Now, what I don't mean in all of this is that if someone is stuck in an abusive relationship, that's something that needs to end. But what I'm talking about is the kind of attitude that says, my friend let me down, my friend hurt my feelings, so good riddance to them. I'm better off without them, and I'm just going to fill my life with people that make me feel positive all the time. This is a narcissistic attitude that can threaten the unity of believers if we let it creep in. It will destroy friendships, and without strong friendships, there will not be the kind of unity that Jesus desires for us. So since the beginning of the church, even today, we see that there are things that threaten the church's unity. But what is the antidote to these things? Is it even possible for the church to be unified the way Jesus desired? We hear all the time that Jesus wants us to be unified, but what does it really look like? I mean, what does it really look like? And if you're hoping that I'm going to give you a rock-solid answer as to what it really looks like, like here's some specific ways that we can do to make everybody realize that they're wrong and you're right, you're going to be disappointed. My desire today is not to give us an overly idealistic view of what unity looks like that nobody can really live up to. My desire today is simply to give us some ideas and understanding as to what we need to think and practice in order for unity to be possible. Things that we can cultivate as we seek to live out the redemptive work of Jesus in our lives. In Ephesians 4, verse 3, Paul wrote, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And Paul is saying this, he's not giving his readers an unrealistic ideal, but he's giving them something to practice every day. That's why he says, make every effort. And if we go back to Ephesians 4, verse 2, he actually gives some specific examples of what it looks like to make every effort. And he says in verse 2, to be completely humble. Can you raise your hand if you're humble? Just kidding. Again, Paul is not saying to be completely humble, and now he expects his readers to be perfectly humble all the time. But he's given his readers something to practice every day so they will continually grow into it. So the first thing we need to know, if we want to make every effort to keep the unity among us of the, the Spirit, is we need to practice humility towards one another. And there was a writer uh, and teacher named Dallas Willard. He wrote mainly about spiritual formation. And he came up with three words. They all start with the letter P to help people know how to practice humility in their lives. And I really believe that if, if we follow Willard's advice, it can be a good practice for us too. So he encourages us not to do these three things. Don't pretend, don't presume, and don't push. So the first one, don't pretend, we pretend a lot. My daughter really loves these piggy and elephant books, and it's about a pig and elephant that are best friends, 
and they go on these adventures together, and they learn lessons about friendship along the way. It's beautiful stories. But there's this one book where Piggy is pretending to be a frog. So Piggy comes hopping along, saying, ribbit, ribbit, and this, this really kind of throws the elephant off. He's confused, he doesn't know what's going on, but then as they start talking, the elephant turns to Piggy and says, you mean you can just pretend? And Piggy's like, yeah. And then the elephant says, do even grown-ups pretend? And at this point, Piggy turns to you, the reader, with a very sly grin on his face, and he says, all the time. And it's true. We do pretend a lot. But if we want to be humble and show humility towards others, we need to be honest first with God, with ourselves, and with others. We need to stop pretending we have our lives together. We need to stop pretending that we know what we're doing all the time. And we need to stop pretending in order to earn people's acceptance and approval of us. But we also need to stop presuming things about others. How often have we said things and done things? Have we made mistakes? And the first thing that comes through our minds is, I really hope nobody thinks badly about me because of this. We don't want people to presume things about us without talking to us first, without being honest. But how often are we guilty of presuming things about other people? How often are we guilty of seeing things, of hearing things, and then our minds just go to presuming that we know what is really going on in that person's heart? But we need to stop presuming, and we need to start talking more. And then we need to stop pushing. Now, hopefully, no one here literally just goes up to somebody and just pushes them down for the fun of it. If you have kids, you know sometimes that happens, and they just get pure enjoyment out of it. But that's not the kind of pushing that we're talking about. When Dallas Willard says, don't push, he's telling us we shouldn't push or force our wills onto others. And why do we do that? Why, do we, why is it so easy for us to push our will onto others? And the simple answer is because we're afraid. Whenever we find ourselves wanting to control anything, including the will of others, it's because we're afraid. We're afraid of losing something. We're afraid of losing respect of others. We're afraid of losing our standing in life. We're afraid of losing our way of life. We're afraid of losing friendships. We're afraid of not being strong, of not being powerful, of not being happy, of experiencing pain and sorrow and suffering. When we are afraid, we sometimes will stop at nothing to try to control things to get them to be the way that we want them to be. We can end up making ourselves God because only God can make things the way that they are supposed to be. And yes, there are things that we are responsible for in our lives, and yes, there are things that are in our power to control, but controlling the will of others is not one of them. So don't pretend, don't presume, and don't push. If you remember these words and practice them daily, we can practice humility towards one another, and without humility, there is no unity. So right after Paul's instruction to practice humility, he then says to bear with one another in love. And it's interesting that he says to bear with one another. Why does he say that? He says it because he knows it's not going to be easy. He knows that we're going to hurt each other. He knows that having a good relationship 
with other believers from diverse backgrounds, diverse cultures, it's going to take work. It's going to take effort. And sometimes it's going to feel like we're having to bear our way through it. And when, when you think of bearing your way through something, it's usually something very hard and very difficult, something that you may not necessarily really want to do. Like, you might have to bear your way through a root canal. Or you might have to bear your way through the day because you have songs from Dora the Explorer stuck in your head all day long. But people are going to hurt us. And we're going to get let down. And we are going to hurt others. And we are going to let them down. But when we bear through something, we don't give up. Instead of just letting people go or ruining friendships when people hurt us or when we hurt others, if we are committed to bearing with one another in love and patience, we will learn to forgive just like we've been forgiven. We will learn to walk in other people's shoes. We will learn that instead of friendships being something that are easily disposable, Friendships are something that we actually need in our lives to help us look more like Jesus. Can you imagine how freeing it would be for you to know that people are not just going to cast you aside and give up on you? How freeing would it be for you to know that, yes, you're going to let people down, you're going to hurt people, but the body of Christ will never give up on you? they would still be there waiting to forgive, waiting to be reconciled, waiting and ready to work through whatever it is that needs to be worked through. How freeing would it be to know that our brothers and sisters in Christ will never give up on us? When Jesus came to bring us salvation, he did not wait until we had our lives together. He did not wait until we had repented from all of the sins in our lives. Jesus came and died for us while we were still sinners. And even after we believe and belong to Christ, we still sin, and we're still going to sin. And even then, Jesus still does not give up on us. In 1 John, it says that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. How freeing would it be for the people of God to know that through their sin, sorrows, and struggles, the family of God will still be there by their side? But it starts with us practicing it first. It starts with us choosing to be the people that patiently forgive and show grace and mercy because that is exactly what Jesus did for us. And that's what it means to bear with one another in love. And if we're not willing to bear with one another, then unity will be hopeless. So, Jesus said, going back to John 17, I have given them my glory so that they may be one. This glory refers to Jesus as the one who reveals the Father, refers to his death, resurrection, his ascension, and it refers to him pointing people towards the Father. It is this glory that he has shared with us, which means we are to embody a life that looks like Jesus, an incarnational life, a life that dies to sin, a life that has been raised to life and is alive to God, a life that is allegiant to Jesus alone as king. A life that reveals God to the world through the Spirit in continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth. And the purpose of Jesus sharing his glory with us is unity. And the goal of unity is so that the world may believe. So there's more at stake than simply just 
people getting along. And this is not a unity that requires us to agree with everyone else. It's not a unity that requires us to look the same and sound the same. But it's a unity that is a single focus, a single devotion, a single-hearted allegiance to Jesus that transcends everything else. There are many things that threaten this unity today, but if we seek to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit by practicing humility and bearing with one another in love, just like Jesus did for us, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and suddenly find ourselves having this unity that we all want. But we will be on our way towards cultivating it. And through Jesus, all who believe and trust in him belong to one family together. And one day, Jesus is going to come back. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that when everything is fulfilled, everything in heaven and on earth will be united together under Christ. And that is the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And as we seek to be unified with our brothers and sisters in Christ in love, we will be our first fruit of that coming unification of all things under Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 21, Paul talks about how all of creation itself will one day be redeemed from its decay and its destruction. He writes that one day creation itself will be brought into the freedom and the glory, there's that word again, of the children of God. As we seek to cultivate and protect this unity that we have through Jesus, we will witness to the world that Jesus is true and that God has, in fact, so loved the world that he sent his only son into it. And we will also be pointing people towards the day, that beautiful day, where creation itself will be redeemed, where everything will be brought together under Jesus, where sin will be no more, death will be defeated, and we will no longer worry about anything ever trying to separate us from the love of our Savior and the love from one another. As I close, I'd like to pray this prayer that is attributed to St. Francis, and it's a beautiful prayer that cultivates a commitment to unity and faithfulness to one another. So please pray with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is error, truth. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and is it in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.